the New Atheism a Critique. Uh, Michael Roos is a atheist philosopher from America, not one of the new atheists though, and he's had quite a public spat with uh, Richard Dawkins off and on. He says, uh, since the turn of the millennium, a new militancy has arisen among religious skeptics. It's uh, a movement that uh, an edition of Wired magazine kind of dubbed the New Atheism, and that's the, the name that really stuck for the movement. And it's very well summarised, the heart of the New Atheism, by uh, Gary Wolfe in his article in Wired magazine, where he says, the New Atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion is not only wrong, it's evil. So it's not simply a matter of, well, we have an intellectual disagreement and I think you're wrong about your belief in God, but that's fine for you. It's, no, that's not, that's not fine for you, because not only is your belief intellectually suspect, but it's morally suspect as well. Who are the new atheists? This is a DVD cover of a DVD called The Four Horsemen, uh, put out by uh, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens, who are perhaps the four most famous new atheists. Um, as this uh, illustration from a national newspaper shows, picking up on their self-description as the four horsemen, kind of four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, but not a religious apocalypse, but rather an apocalypse for religion, um, if you can put it like that. So we have Richard Dawkins, um, Oxford University zoologist and author of The God Delusion, the best-selling uh, New Atheist book. Daniel Dennett, who's a philosopher primarily of science, and books of his like Breaking the Spell. Then have Sam Harris, who's a philosopher stroke scientist, books of his like Letters to a Christian Nation, and journalist Christopher Hitchens and his book God is Not Great. We could also add to that list um, people like British philosopher A.C. Grayling in his little book Against All Gods. I've got a review of that online in various places, I think. And uh, French philosopher Michel Onfray, uh, his book In Defense of Atheism, and so on. Christopher Hitchens, I love this uh, photo of him in his sort of journalistic Mac, smoking a cigarette in black and white, very moody. Um, this is a good kind of summary of a new atheist position from um, Letters to a Young Contrarian. He says, I'm not even an atheist so much as I am an anti-theist. I not only maintain that all religions are versions of the same untruth, but I hold that the influence of churches and the effect of religious belief is positively harmful. So you see, there's very much a, a moral ethical dimension uh, a sort of socio-political movement on top of uh, a worldview belief here. So the New Atheists believe that at the core of even the most outwardly benign, you know, garden fate, putting on church tea, uh, tea drinking, uh, liberal Anglican, you know, uh, at the heart of even that kind of religion is an immoral commitment to flouting one's intellectual responsibilities. And that's primarily why they think religion is immoral, because this commitment to immorality, uh, an immoral uh, view of your intellectual commitments, allows um, other immoralities to come out of religion. But that's the kind of uh, core source of religion's immorality. 
So Hitchens says, uh, here is the point about myself and my co-thinkers. Our belief is not a belief. He must mean those two words in slightly different senses. Um, Our principles are not faith. So it's a better clarification of what he means. He says, we distrust anything that contradicts science or outrages reason. Uh, As if to say, by implication, of course, that religious people are, of course, uh, people who don't distrust things that contradict science or outrage reason. Faith, according to the New Atheists, here's uh, some definitions. Dawkins says, faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Victor J. Stenger, uh, a physicist, a philosopher of science, says, faith is belief in the absence of supportive evidence and even in the light of contrary evidence. A.C. Grayling, British philosopher, says, faith is a commitment to belief contrary to evidence and reason. He's even more hardline on it than Dawkins, if you can imagine such a thing. So Dawkins uh, says uh, things like this. I do everything in my power to warn people against faith itself. See how faith is at the heart of this debate. Not just against so-called extremist faith. The teachings of moderate religion, though not extremist in themselves, are an open invitation to extremism because they've given up on nationality. Wonderful quotation here from Daniel Dennett from a debate he took part in on is religion a threat to rationality in science? He says religion is the greatest threat to rationality in scientific progress. People are revered for their capacity to live in a dream world, to shield their minds from factual knowledge and make the major decisions of their lives by consulting voices in their head that they call forth by rituals designed to intoxicate them hasn't been to the sort of communion services I go to, clearly. Uh, Impervious to reason, he says, is, I think, the property that we should most fear in religion. I think I might kind of agree with him there, only that he thinks that that property is displayed by all religion. He says, other institutions or traditions may encourage a certain amount of irrationality, but only religion demands it as a sacred duty. So that's their view of the problem. Well, from my point of view, I think it's astonishing that they clearly haven't come across biblical verses like 1 Peter 3.15, the apologist's favourite Bible verse. 1 Peter 3.15, which reads, Always be prepared to give an answer. The word translated as answer there is in the Greek apologia, which means a reasoned defence. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Or just a selection of Bible verses from the Old and New Testament, um, God saying, let us reason together. The prophet Samuel saying to Israel, I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord. Uh, Matthew recording how Jesus taught about the greatest commandment, including being to love God with all of your mind. Um, Jesus himself saying to people in John's Gospel, believe on the evidence of the miracles. Um, Paul writing of defending and confirming the Gospel as a description of his own ministry. Um, Luke recording in Acts how Paul would reason in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, arguing persuasively about the Kingdom of God. 
Uh, Paul says in Corinthians, in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to everyone who asks questions, Colossians 4, 6. So that the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is suffused with an endorsement of thinking about spiritual matters, of paying attention to evidence, of having rational grounds for what you're believing and doing. I think a good modern translation of the term faith would actually be our English word trust. I think that's a good way of saying it and perhaps we ought to try and avoid talking about faith and I've got Christian faith and say things like I trust in Jesus. I've got trust in God. Because trust is obviously compatible with evidence. You know, if I trust someone that doesn't automatically mean that I trust them in the absence of any good reasons for trusting them. It certainly doesn't mean that I trust them in the face of good reasons not to trust them or to think that they're lying to me. And I go, well, I'm just going to trust them anyway and believe what they say. You know, um, Trust doesn't mean that and faith doesn't mean that either. To put it in a little bit more philosophical terms, I might analyse faith like this. Any instance of an intellectual belief that something is the case, you believe that something is the case, plus a commitment to, or a belief in, as philosophers would say, a belief in X, whatever that is, when you have those two factors together, then you have faith in X. So a belief that X plus a belief in X, then you have an instance of faith. And while I think it would be very odd to have a belief in X, unless you believe that there was an X, to believe in your trustworthiness, if I didn't believe that you were trustworthy, to uh, have a belief in God, if I didn't believe that there was a God, it's obviously possible to believe that someone is trustworthy, or that God exists, without exercising a commitment to them, or a belief in them. As the Bible itself says, even the demons believe that there's a God and they tremble they just have a different attitude towards him rather the reverse of a commitment so Christian faith could be described as an intellectual belief that Jesus is Lord and so on plus a commitment to Jesus or a belief in Jesus' promises and so on that is to have faith or trust in Jesus as C.S. Lewis said faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For him, the opposition is not between faith and reason, but between faith and reason on the one hand and uh, temptation, say, on the other hand, or uh, a mood that suddenly comes upon you because you haven't had enough sleep and you've eaten too much cheese, you know, um, or whatever. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. And he makes the point that actually um, that would go for being an atheist as much as it would go for being a a theist or a Christian or whatever. That if you uh, don't tell, uh, have the capacity to kind of just tell your passing moods where to get off and to have a commitment to doing what you believe on the basis of, of having some reasons to believe it perhaps, 
you couldn't be a good atheist, let alone a good Christian. <laughs> so I think, in response to this kind of new atheist analysis of the, the evils of religion, that they're not only wrong about faith, and which that is at the core of their critique, in that faith is not incompatible with reason, but that their purported uh, positive defense of rationality, which is the sort of banner that they're waving for people to come and congregate around, that their purported defense of rationality is itself profoundly anti-rational. And it, I find it astonishing that a group of scientists and philosophers are so, uh, from my point of view, profoundly anti-rational, whilst at the same time calling people to a defense of reason and science, as I think is the subtitle of Victor Stenger's new book, The New Atheism. And indeed, I think that defense is self-contradictory in three ways that I point out in the paper in uh, spring 2010 Think Journal, which I've uh, whimsically titled The Emperor's Incoherent New Clothes, pointing the finger at Dawkins' atheism. Um, Let's look at those three ways in turn. Here's the first contradiction, the first way. I think they have a self-contradictory epistemology. Now, philosophers love long, complicated words that mean simple things. So, uh, epistemology is simply the philosopher's way of saying how we know stuff. Okay? So I think they have a self-contradictory view of how we know stuff. Here's some examples. Dawkins says, next time someone tells you that something's true, why not say to them, what kind of evidence is there for that? And by evidence, it really does seem from the context that he means kind of empirical, scientific evidence, the sort of stuff you can measure and touch and infer from that. And if they can't give you a good answer, I hope you'll think very carefully before you believe a word they say. In other words, don't believe them. Well, Daniel Dennett uh, complains, canonical religious beliefs have to be taken on faith and are not subject to scientific or historical confirmation. Um, contrary to what Jesus himself said, but there we go. Um, or Sam Harris, and this is a doozy. He says, while believing strongly without evidence is considered a mark of madness or stupidity in any other area of our lives, faith in God still holds immense prestige in our society. I Belief in God is that one area where it's not considered a mark of madness or stupidity to believe strongly in God without any evidence. Some responses. Seems to me that doubting that the universe is more than five minutes old, if someone professed to doubt that the universe was more than five minutes old, that would probably be considered a mark of madness or stupidity by most people. Yeah? Uh, but the belief that the universe is older than five minutes old, and that's a belief that I share, by the way, uh, rather than say that the universe really had come into existence five minutes ago, complete with your apparent memories of yesterday and all the tree rings in the trees and so on. Well, that belief, which I think we all really share, must be accepted without any evidence. Because... Any evidence that you try to give for believing that the world is older than five minutes, according to the theory that the world came into existence five minutes ago, well, that evidence came into existence five minutes ago. You know, it's no, and it's no, no point saying, yeah, but look, this tree's got loads of rings. 
and I'm now measuring the, the rate of growth that I can extrapolate from that and show that this tree must have been in existence for longer than five minutes. So, no, no, on my hypothesis, that tree complete with its tree rings and its current rate of growth came into existence five minutes ago. So that's not, not evidence for this. It doesn't falsify the hypothesis that it's only five minutes old. The fact that you seem to remember your last birthday or Christmas or whatever, you know, well, that memory was itself created only five minutes ago. That's no evidence that contradicts the theory that it was created five minutes ago to point to that memory. It's literally impossible to give any empirical evidence that the world is older than five minutes old. And yet, to do science, you certainly have to believe that the world is older than five minutes old, don't you? To get around in life, rationally, you have to believe that the world is older than five minutes old. You have to believe it strongly. Here's another problem. The demand for everything to be justified by evidence entails an infinite regress of re giving reasons and evidence for your evidence for your evidence for your evidence that could never be satisfied. If you said, I'm never going to believe anything until I've got good evidence that it's true, someone tries to give you good evidence that it's true, you would point at the evidence and you would say, well, that's very nice, but I'd like to have some evidence that that evidence is really real and that it really does point to this conclusion. Because I'm not going to believe that that evidence is real until I've got some evidence for it. Because I'm not going to believe anything until I've got evidence for it. And you could then repeat that futile process of giving evidence ad infinitum. Which, of course, you cannot do. So if you followed this rule, literally, you could never rationally believe anything. Including this rule, of course. What is the evidence for the truth of the proposition that it's irrational to believe anything unless you've got evidence in its favour. None. It's self-contradictory. So there are many ways of pointing out the problems with following this kind of rule, but I would be with those epistemologists who would say, no, that is far too simplistic. Evidence is a great thing in the right circumstance. Fantastic. But it can't be the be-all and end-all of knowing and rationally believing things for these kind of reasons. The second way is a self-contradictory anthropology, uh, a long word meaning um, what people are like, basically, understanding of what people are like. This comes down to me particularly to once you have a, a metaphysically naturalistic and materialistic view of people, uh, Nick was mentioning about this in this morning's session, that you end up with a, uh, a view of people that rules out free will. And Richard Dawkins is, is pretty clear about this. Um, here's a quote, and he says, human brains, which is of course all what a human mind is on his view, a human brain, though they may not work in the same way as a man-made computer, uh, are surely governed by the laws of physics. This is the only type of reality that there is on his worldview. Uh, when a computer malfunctions, we do not punish it. That would be stupid, wouldn't it? Uh, we track down the problem and we fix it, usually by replacing a damaged component, uh, either in hardware or in the software. And the intimation there, of course, is that we should be treating people in the same way, because people, like computers, are just nothing more than physical systems behaving according to the laws of physics, and if they malfunction, work in a way that we don't like, well, then you have to not blame them 
or punish them, you have to track down the problem and fix it by replacing a component, or if you can't fix the machine, you chuck the machine out and you get a new one that does work. You can see where this might go in terms of jurisprudence and so on. Um, another quote from him, applying it much more to the moral field, he says, why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers or on thuggish vandals when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing? So he's being very clear and saying people are just basically complicated machines behaving through the laws of physics. It makes no sense to punish them, hold them responsible for what they do. You just need to fix them or replace them. Question. If everything about a person is governed by the laws of physics, blaming them for their intellectual failings, like having blind faith, say, makes as much sense, surely, as Newton blaming gravity for giving him an apple-sized bump on the head. Yeah, gravity is the cause of the bump on his head, but he can't hold it responsible in a moral, ethical sense. And it wouldn't make any sense for him to try and punish gravity for doing that to him. Well, given that, how could anyone, uh, including a Christian, uh, be responsible for not living up to their intellectual obligations? If they aren't free to be responsible for anything in the first place? Answer, as far as I can make out, they can't. So, trying to blame people for not being rational by having blind faith and trying to call them to live up to their intellectual obligations on the one hand, whilst on the other hand saying, actually, you're not free and you have no responsibility. How do you square that circle? And here's the third and last way, a self-contradictory ethics. Let me distinguish for you three different types of um, ethical discussion that philosophers uh, have. Um, applied ethics is the kind of chalk face. I need, I need chalk face. I need to make an ethical decision. You know, do I turn off um, the uh, machine that's keeping him alive or not? Um, you know, do I shoot uh, the gunman dead in order to save the people that he's threatening uh, or not? I need to make an ethical decision. That's applied ethics. That often uh, will come out of applying some sort of criteria or rules or kind of ethical system of thinking um, that philosophers will call a normative ethics uh, a discussion about what, well, what are the norms, the kind of rules of thumb that we should try and apply to make ethical decisions. That's normative ethics. But undergirding all of that is what's called meta-ethics, uh, before or beyond ethics, um, talking about things like, well, what is an ethical value? Is there actually such a thing as an objective right, wrong, good, evil? Or are these distinctions purely subjective distinctions relative to individuals and or cultures? Um, is it like saying... Um, well, I like strawberry-flavoured ice cream more than chocolate. And you say, well, I like chocolate more than strawberry. Well, we're not really having a disagreement. We're just telling each other what our individual psychology is. But when I say, you know, I think the Holocaust was evil and the commandant of Belson concentration camp says, well, I thought it was a good thing. Is that on a par with the ice cream discussion or are we actually having a disagreement? 
you know, that's the area of meta-ethics. And I've put into brackets here in this quote from Dawkins where those different levels of ethical discussion crop up. And he's arguing here, uh, this is in his interview with Nick Pollard um, from Third Way magazine, you can find it online as well. And he's arguing that just because he believes in Darwinism as a scientist doesn't mean that he endorses what's called social Darwinism, that, that society and politics should be run according to the law of the jungle, basically. He says there's no logical connection between what is facts and what ought value. Now, many people draw this facts-value distinction, and I'm very leery of this distinction because I think it, it abrogates the discussion about whether or not values themselves are or are not facts. Because I think it's a fact that the Holocaust was evil. You see? But many people will draw this facile distinction as I say it. It says there's no logical connection between what is and what ought. And in the sense of someone with a metaphysically naturalistic worldview says the only kind of reality is this just kind of material reality that just kind of is and isn't it itself containing moral values in some in sort of inherent sense, then you can't get, as Hume said, from a, from a descriptive is, to the way things just happen to be, to a prescriptive, the way things ought to be. How do you bridge that gap? So there's no logical connection. If someone used my views, his meta-ethical views, says Dawkins, to justify a completely self-centred lifestyle, which would be a matter of applied ethics, which involved trampling all over other people in any way they chose, you know, following a social Darwinist ethic, I would be fairly hard put to it to argue on purely intellectual grounds, says Dawkins. I couldn't, ultimately, argue intellectually against somebody who did something I found obnoxious. And it goes against his norm, but hey. I think I could finally only say, well, in this society you can't get away with it and call the police. Back to applied ethics, I'm not going to let you do that. And actually, though he starts off trying to argue that although he's a Darwinist, that doesn't justify social Darwinism, Darwinism doesn't justify following the law of the jungle, he then admits, well, I can't intellectually sustain objecting to things as being really objectively wrong, and all I can do at the end of it is call the police on you and say, I'm more powerful than you, so I can stop you. In other words, we need to follow the law of the jungle. Oops. If might equals right, yeah, that's what he's left with. Naturalism, sure, doesn't justify a self-centred lifestyle. You can't say, because materialism true is true, because Darwinism is true, therefore you ought to be self-centred, because materialism would say, no, there's no such thing as a real, genuine ought. So it doesn't justify being self-centred. And he's right to point that out. But equally, neither does it justify saying you ought not to be self-centred. <laughs> it doesn't justify it one way or the other. Uh, so the, the boomerang comes back and hits him in the back of the head, as it were. An interesting snippet of conversation he had with uh, Justin Briley from Premier Christian Radio. Did a little interview with him after a debate uh, recently uh, on this theme. Justin asked... Uh, Dawkins, when you make a value judgment, don't you, don't you immediately step yourself outside of this evolutionary process and say that the reason this is good is that it's, it's good. 
And, and you don't have any way to stand on that statement. And Dawkins says, my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past. Well, I'm sure the feelings and so on could. Uh, Justin says, so therefore it's, it's just as random, uh, in a sense, as any product of evolution. And Dawkins says, you could say that. It doesn't in any case, and nothing about it makes it more probable that there's anything supernatural here. He wants to head off the, the moral argument. But Justin um, doesn't let the, the red herring pass. He says, well, ultimately, your belief that, that rape is wrong is, an arbitrary, is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. He puts it to Dawkins, and Dawkins replies, you could say that, yeah. The universe that we observe, says Dawkins, in... Uh, God's utility function has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, i.e. no God, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. In another place he said there is a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction, is that fact-value distinction again, between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense and ideas about what we ought to do, which are a different category, normative or moral ideas, for which the words true and false have no meaning, he says. Normative or moral ideas for which the words true or false have no meaning. On Dawkins' worldview, according to Dawkins, two quotations, other quotations to round this off from Dawkins. One, these are both from the God Delusion, Hitler and Stalin were, by any standards, spectacularly evil men. Well, I agree, Mr. Dawkins, but you say that there aren't any standards. You say there is no good or evil. And so when you come on later in the book to say faith is an evil, precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument, you have to remember that what he's saying here, according to his own view of things, literally has no meaning. And he's not true or false. Huh? So the new atheist meta-ethic boils down to saying something like this. One, we have an objective moral obligation to oppose religion because religion is an objectively bad thing uh, in that it encourages people to ignore their intellectual moral obligations. And two, by the way, there are no objective moral obligations. Try squaring that circle. Uh, and I can push this one step further, I think. Here's a question. Uh, how could anyone feel an intellectual obligation to agree with a worldview that denies any reality to intellectual obligations. Could you rationally think to yourself, yeah, that worldview says that there's no such thing as an intellectual obligation, and I can see that I have an intellectual obligation to believe that worldview. Seems to me answer that they can't. <laughs> Um, advert for my book, Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, on sale here in all good Christian bookshops and Amazon and so on. 